Someone trying to squeeze 400 more bucks out of you for, for nothing. I They don't get quiet. We still have two and a half minutes, so. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hello. I am well. Hello, ladies.
I don't start until my phone says 7.15. All right, 7.15. So welcome everyone, week two of how to get the most out of your Bible. Everybody needs a notebook. I know some of you were not here last week, so the notebooks are right there on the counter, and we got plenty for everybody to have their own copy and bring it back with you each week. We left off on page four in those notebooks. For those of you that were not here last week, though, in your notebook, if you've got a notebook tonight, there's a, uh, a single-page sheet in there that shows our church's spiritual growth process. And I called attention to that last week. There it is. And I just want to quickly, for the benefit of those who weren't here last week, uh, point that out to you because this class is highlighted in the green and gray in the middle. And the reason we have that highlighted is because this is one of two classes that we call our foundational classes. We want everybody who can and is willing to take these classes so that everybody who comes into our church has uh, a same doctrinal uh, footing and they know how to get around in the Bible. So this one is the how to get around in the Bible, how to get the most out of your Bible. And then the next one, Master Plan for Life, we call a systematic theology for regular people. And so it's systematic theology, the doctrinal heads that go under that, uh, go under that title, systematic theology, doctrine of God, of the Bible, of humanity and sin, of Christ's salvation, of the church, of last things. It covers all of those, but it does so in a way that regular folks like us can, can understand. So we think that if everybody at least gets those, then they have a good foundation to build on and to continue to grow throughout their, their Christian life. And we offer classes after you complete these then to help you do that. So as I speak right now, there are two classes going on um, behind each of the walls here. Uh, the one behind me is through 1 Corinthians. The one behind that wall is going through the Gospel of, of Matthew. So welcome to everybody, but welcome to those who weren't able to be here last week. And we do record these, so if you have to miss uh, a session, then you can listen to the recording on our, on our website. And those who weren't here, obviously you missed that. So I would encourage you to listen so you've got the beginning of uh, what we discussed, uh, discussed for this class and what we covered last week. So as I say, we left off on page four. You see about a third of the way down the size and diversity of the Bible. This is part of what makes the Bible difficult for a lot of people. And this class is designed to try to take some of the intimidation out of, uh, out of studying the Bible. Uh, and that intimidation is because of, in part, those two things, how large it is uh, and how old it is. The Bible contains 1,189 chapters. It has 66 books. It was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. The first was written nearly 3,500 years ago, the last approximately 1,900 years ago. So it's, uh, it's no wonder then that some people look at that and say, I could never get my arms around, around that book. So this is designed, this class, to help us do that, take some of that intimidation out. Now we say that the uh, first uh, books were written nearly 3,500 years ago. It's actually at least uh, 3,500 years ago. The first books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five, were written at least 3,500 years ago. 
It may be, and many uh, uh, believe, and, and I believe that Job is probably actually the oldest book in, in the Bible, so it was written even earlier than that. Job actually has allusion, allusions in the, uh, the book to, to dinosaurs, uh, I believe. And so that's one of the reasons that we believe it's the, the oldest book in the Bible. But you have those opening books, those first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that cover uh, essential and beginning matters. The very first book, Genesis, is that name. It's the, the beginning, and it begins with in the, in the beginning. So it begins with creation and, and starts where everything then, then needs to start. So we say that you have those first five books, and they are foundational. And we also say that those first five books that were written at least 15, uh, written about 1,500 years ago, were written by Moses. So we believe, I believe, the Bible teaches that those were written uh, about 3,500 years ago. Did I say 1,500 years ago? 1,500 B.C., 3,500 years ago. And they were written by Moses. Now why, do I, now, why do I say that? Why do I believe that these books were written by Moses? I'm going to go through some passages in the New Testament where Jesus talked about these, uh, the, the things that, that Moses said, and he would quote from those books uh, very often, or he would be asked about them. And invariably, when those books were alluded to or quoted, they were attributed to Moses. So I'll give you several examples. From Matthew 19, Jesus' detractors asked him, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now that's an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 24, but they are saying that Moses is the one who, who wrote this. Now if Jesus wanted to correct them and say, you know, Moses, Moses didn't actually write these, this would be a good time to, uh, to say that. But his answer, the next verse, is Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So he not only does not correct them, he actually uh, takes their assumption that, in fact, Moses did write the book of Deuteronomy. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 44, Jesus said, See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Again, that's an allusion to one of those first five books, the book of Leviticus, that talks about these uh, ceremonial offerings and priestly duties and, and all of that, but Jesus attributes that to Moses. Mark chapter 7 and verse 10, Jesus says, Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and... Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. So here he is now attributing to Moses Exodus chapter 20 that has the Ten Commandments and Deuteronomy chapter 5 also has the Ten Commandments, Exodus and Deuteronomy, both uh, coming from, from Moses according to Jesus. So if you're going to say that you know, any of those first five books did not come from Moses, you're going to have to contend with what Jesus had to say about it. Mark chapter 12 and verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember the account of the bush or the burning bush is in the book of Exodus. Jesus again attributing it to Moses. Luke chapter 16 and verse 29. Jesus, uh, quote, Jesus quoting Abraham saying, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to, to them. Just a, a few more. Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. John 1.17, John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 5.45, Jesus said, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser, he says to these religious detractors, is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. Last one, John 7, 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? So over and over again, Jesus attributes these first five books of your Bible to, to uh, Moses. So as I say, if you're going to, if you're going to say something other than uh, Moses is the author of these books, then you're going to have to contend with what Jesus had to, had to say about it. Now, lots of people have said that. Lots of people over the years have said that Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. And they said that for various reasons. I mean, most of all, they just don't believe the Bible. And they don't believe the miraculous and the predictions and all of that sort, sort of stuff. So... We call people who fit in that category theological liberals who just don't believe what the Bible, uh, what the Bible affirms and, and claims. So what do they do then? They've, they've come up with a way to uh, determine authorship other than that of Moses by a theory called the J-E-D-P theory. J-E-D-P. Uh, those, are, that's a, that's an acronym, the JEDP, Documentary Hypothesis. And what do the JEDMP stand for? Well, here's what, they, here's what the claim is, is that in those five books, that the name of God is used differently in some of the books. So in some of the books, uh, he is, God is referred to as, in English, Jehovah. In Hebrew, Yahweh. So Jehovah. And so that's the J writer. There's a writer who refers to God as Jehovah or Yahweh, the J writer. But then there's the E writer. And that is portions of those first five books where the name of God is primarily Elohim. It's another name for God in the, in the Old Testament. And so these are clearly not the same person because you couldn't have the same person having some context in which he would emphasize one thing and somewhere he would emphasize another. I'm saying that facetiously. Of course you could, and in fact, Moses did. But that's the claim, that you got a separate writer, a J writer, you got an E writer, the Elohim writer, and then you got the D writer, and that's whoever wrote Deuteronomy. The Deuteronomist, who shall remain nameless other than Deuteronomist, uh, no one knows who this is. No one knows who the J writer is. No one knows who the E writer is, as a matter of fact. But very influential theory, J-E-D. And then the P writer is the priestly writer. This is the writer who wrote the priestly portions like found in the book of Leviticus. So you have at least four different writers of these five books according to these, these German theorists. And this German documentary hypothesis came to America 
at the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, infiltrated seminaries, and then there's a whole history that goes with that that we talk about when we teach classes on, on church history, which I would encourage you, encourage you to take. But there was a group that arose out of that uh, called fundamentalists who said, you know, we believe, we believe what the Bible says uh, about this stuff, and we're no longer going to support seminaries who say otherwise. And so they started their own, their own things. I graduated from a seminary who came out of that. Westminster Theological Seminary came out of Princeton Theological Seminary for, for this, uh, this very, very reason. So the JEDP theory. And then the other thing that liberal theologians would say is Moses couldn't have written because at the time Moses is alleged to have lived in 1500 BC, we didn't even have the kind of writing necessary. There was no such thing. But then subsequent to all of those claims, uh, there have been archaeological finds that show that long before 1500 BC, we had very advanced forms of, of writing. So just letting you know, not everybody believes what the Bible says. But the Bible teaches that the first five books of your Bible are written by, by Moses. And Jesus uh, claimed as much himself. Now, we saw last week that the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, were written in different languages. Old Testament Hebrew, 268 verses are written in Aramaic, so just a, a very small portion, but Hebrew, and then the New Testament in, in Greek. Hebrew is a consonantal language. It is written with only consonants. So you think about you think about having a language that has no vowels. Now vowels are for the purpose, thus the name vowel, to help vocalize, to help you say stuff. If all of you have, have are consonants, then you have to like make up some vowels in order to actually be able to say the thing. But Hebrew is strictly consonants. And so if you took my full legal name, uh, K-E-N-N-Y, that's my legal name, Kenny, not Kenneth. So I can never have a dignified name my entire <laughs> life. I'm always going to be a little boy my entire life. <laughs> Kenny, and, and when my wife wants to insult me, she calls me by my legal name. She says, Kenny, little boy, my family's from the South. Kenny, not Kenneth, no middle name either, just Kenny Brown, that's, that, that's it. But if you take Kenny, and you just take the, if you just take the, the consonants, then all you got are the K and the N and the N and the Y, although sometimes Y acts as a, as a, a vowel. Uh, but, you know, you don't have, what are you going to put in there? It could be Kiny for a vowel, right? You have to supply the vowel some, somehow. Now, if you're always around that, though, in particular context, and you see those symbols, then it becomes common as to how we pronounce it. And so people just learn how to pronounce common words that they use, even though they don't have vowels in the written language, it's just, it's just consonants. But if that language and its use are dormant over a long period of time, you're going to completely lose how to pronounce stuff. 
And remember last week we talked about the fact that one of the reasons that you have those 268 verses in the Old Testament written in Aramaic is because there was this period where the Old Testament people of God, the Jews, were carted off to Babylon. And in Babylon, Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian Empire. And so they're there for 70 years, they learn Aramaic, and they forget Hebrew. And when they come back, they now have this consonantal language. How do you pronounce this stuff? So one of the things they did was develop a way to put vowels in the words without, without actually putting letters there. And the reason they didn't want to put letters there is because for Jews, the sacred text, the Hebrew text, was indeed sacred. They didn't want to spoil it somehow by putting, adding to it letters. But we still got to know how to pronounce it. So if you look at a Hebrew Bible, what you will see are these consonants, but then you will have not vowel letters, it has what's called vowel pointing. That it has things underneath it, a consonant, sometimes above, sometimes in the middle. There'll be dashes, dots, two dots, and they all indicate different kinds of sounds. And that's how you, that's how you read Hebrew, and that's how, you pronounce, that's how you pronounce Hebrew. Now, why do I bore you with all that? Look, I got, I've got to fill 12 weeks, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, here's where I'm going, okay? Um, there's actually something really, it's a really big deal that probably most of you have heard of that actually relates to this whole idea of the consonants and the vowels and the vowel pointing. Everybody here has heard of Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you've ever had, we've all had, a Jehovah's Witness come to the door, perhaps you've had them get to the point where they ask you, what is God's name? Because the name of the group, Jehovah's Witnesses, is, is a big deal because the name Jehovah is a big deal. And so when they talk to you, they say, what is his name? I remember years ago, decades ago, when I was a young adult, a Jehovah's Witness coming to my door and getting in my face about what is his name. And this will help you next time that happens because you'll be able to answer this way. You'll be able to say, his name is a, com is a combination of the consonantal <laughs> Y-H-W-H and the vocalic, that would be vocalizing vowels, Adonai. Yahweh and Adonai. Now what is that? In your Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the personal name of God is Yahweh. When his name is used of his relationship with his people, Yahweh, it is from the verb, the Hebrew verb of being, of existence, to be. Do you remember when Moses says to the Lord, when the Lord says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? I am. The verb of being. And that's what, that's what Yahweh is. I am. 
So it's Y-H-W-H. It's those consonants. But then you have this other name that the Old Testament uses for God when it's referring to him in relation to his world. Adonai. And in your, in your Old Testament, your English translation, if you have a New International Version, and others use this convention as well, and I, I find it to be helpful, but when it's a translation of Yahweh, the word Lord in an NIV is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. So when you see it in all caps, the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the personal name of God. When you see capital L, small o, small r, small d, that's a translation of Adonai. So sometimes you have the one, sometimes you have the other. Well, what happened was that in order to pronounce the, the name of God, they took, the, they took the consonants from Y-H-W-H, which had never had any vowel pointing put, put in it because it's the holy name of God. And they took the vowels from Adonai, and it becomes Jehovah. Anglicized to Jehovah. So the English name Jehovah comes from that. The combination of the consonants, Y-H-W-H, and then the vowels from the name Adonai, both brought, both brought together. So when you have the Jehovah's Witness come to your door, just tell them what I told you. They will leave. They will come back the following week with another person. <laughs> That's actually what happens. All right. So uh, back to about a third of the way down in your notes. So here's then a summary of the Bible's message. We're trying to take the mystery out of this intimidating book Intimidating in part because it's large and old. And another way to take that intimidation out is to understand that the Bible's message really can be summarized. Even though it has all of this diversity, even though it has all this antiquity, it, it can be summarized. So as a result of all of this, I say antiquity-sized diversity, the Bible can be intimidating. This course is designed to remove that by getting our arms around Scripture. Although the Bible is a big book, Here's the great news. It's really about a handful of things. And I have those three things listed for you and, and bulleted. And I'd like to take some time to talk about those for what should be obvious reasons then. If the Bible's about these three things, and we want to, we're in a class called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, then you want to get these three things down. The first of those is the Bible is about creation. At creation, God gave Adam and Eve an orientation to his world. He showed and told them who he, is, who he is and what he wanted from them. So the Bible is first of all about this, creation, or you could call it orientation. You know, what we mean by an orientation, if you get a new job, uh, you go to a, a new school, they will often have an orientation that will tell you this is the way things are done. This is where stuff is. Well, that's exactly what you find God doing in the opening two chapters of the Bible. He's giving an orientation to the first human being, to Adam. 
And he says, this is who I am and this is who you are in relation to me. This is where I have placed you and this is what I want you to do. Oh, and by the way, this is what you're not supposed to do as well. An orientation, all in creation, the first two chapters of the Bible. Now, I'd like to chat a bit about creation before we move on to the fall. And what I'm going to say over the next several minutes is not in your notes. So we gave you pens last week. You guys remember that? And many of you have come back with your, your pen. And if you forgot your pen, there are pen, more pens over here. And we'll all take a moment to close our eyes while you go over and get one. <laughs> and remember last week I said if you wind up amassing a bunch of pens over the semester, that we're going to have a plenary forgiveness at the, at the end. It's kind of an amnesty. But if you got a pen, you can jot some of this down. First, at creation, the very first line of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And you, and you got nothing telling you about God. You got nothing telling you where God came from. In the beginning, God. God is. God is presupposed. And throughout your Bible, God is, is presupposed. That people were made by this God, and people were made to know this God. And that's why when God made the first man and talks, as we will see, to the first man and then the woman, they automatically know who he is. Because they were made to. So, so God is presupposed, and there is, there's no attempt to prove his existence there's no attempt to prove where he came from. So if someone asks you, hey, you're a Christian and you believe in this God that you can't explain where he came from, I mean, how dumb is that, say they? I, I would recommend to you don't be terribly embarrassed by this. Because the truth of the matter is every, every person, no matter what they believe about how the universe came into existence, Every person has to, has to, must start with someone or something, the origin of which they cannot explain. I say that without fear of contradiction, right? If you believe that the universe came into existence by an explosion called the Big Bang, you still got to have the raw materials for that, don't you? Where did that come from? You know, so everybody's got to start with someone or something that they can't, everybody does. And the Bible starts with, with God. And I hope you'll see as we go through this class and Master Plan for Life that that is a much more rational and reasonable assumption than gases existing once upon a time and then compressing and then, and then exploding. But the Bible begins with God. God is presupposed and that should not embarrass you because everybody has to start with someone or something, the origin of which they cannot explain. In addition, in that very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So in that very first line, you see that the Bible's story is going to be geocentric, earth-centric. It's going to be centered on the earth. Very first line. Now, how do we know this? There's, 
there's the heavens, and then there's this, there's this one planet that gets singled out from everything else, the heavens and the earth. And then lo and behold, everything's focused on the earth. It's why for me personally, I'm not worried at all. I'm not a big sci-fi fan, personally. It doesn't get me jazzed to think about other worlds and other planets and, and life on other planets. Because in the beginning, <laughs> there's the heavens, and then there's this one place called Earth that God focuses attention on. And this place called Earth, we'll remember later, God himself came to and walked the earth and, and died as a man. So it's, it's geocentric, it's, it's earth-centric. There's the heavens and the earth. In addition, in that first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is a way of saying everything. In the beginning, God created everything. Heavens and earth, in Hebrew, it's, it's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism, which just takes, takes a couple of things to encompass the whole. The heavens and the earth encompassing everything. In the beginning, God made everything. So sometimes, you know, we get the idea that you know, back in eternity past, before God, before the beginning, there was some other stuff going, there was some other stuff going on. I mean, you, you may have thought that. And I would just suggest to you that when the Bible starts within the beginning, that's an absolute beginning. This is when it was all created. At the time of creation, the only being that existed was God. And God did not create because he was lonely. God's never been lonely. God has always had fellowship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we lose the idea that you know, God needs us to kind of fulfill him. God's always had fellowship. And so in the beginning is this absolute beginning. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, if you're still awake, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but what about like Lucifer? What about the you know, angelic band? I mean, what about them? Where did they come? When were they created? You know, now, now look, this is not a matter of life or death, what I'm going to say to you here. You don't have to agree with me, but it's my understanding that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth means in the beginning he created the angels and everything. And then we will see in that first chapter. He begins to detail, day one, day two, day three, some of the things that he created. And somewhere, uh, just, just um, prior to day one, what's recorded about day one, God created the angelic hosts. So they were created, we know that, we know they were there when God was doing this creative activity because in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, Job chapter 38 and verse 7, it says that the morning stars, the angels, sang together at creation. So God creates these angelic beings and they praise God as they watch creation now taking place. 
But it's all happening in the beginning. God creates everything, including the angelic hosts. One of the reasons that I believe this to be the case, that everything is created in the beginning, prior to that there was nothing except God, is because some of you will remember this in your New Testament, the Gospel of John begins this way. In the beginning. You guys remember that? So Genesis 1.1 starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now you come to your New Testament, John 1.1, in the beginning. Well, when John writes in the beginning, that's supposed to send everybody's mind back to the first time anybody ever read in the beginning. Creation. And John indeed starts to make this argument now right away in these first few verses about who Jesus Christ is. That he's God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning. So in the beginning, what do you have? John says, in the beginning, this one that I'm referring to as the Word that he's going to identify specifically in verse 14 as the one who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, none other than Jesus Christ. That this one is God and was with God. What an elegant way to explain something that's impossible to get your mind around. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But He is God and He's with God. So you have God the Father, you have God the, the Son, and then later in the Gospel of John, God the Holy Spirit is going to be spoken of. So here's John now making an argument about who Jesus is. Right at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, He was with God in the beginning. He repeats it. Just in case, you missed it. And then, verse 3, And apart from Him was not anything made that has been made. So he just uses almost tortured language to make sure we understand that in the beginning, there was God. And there was nothing else. And the reason I say that in those verses, John is claiming there was nothing else is because he's wanting to show that he indeed is God. If there was something prior to that, then it would at least give the possibility that there was someone before that. And he's eliminating all of that by saying it the way he does. So it's an absolute beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Further, in Genesis chapter 1, as God, as the Bible is about creation, and in the very first chapter, much of it in the very first verse, God is setting the foundation for all that's going to follow. He then starts to detail how the creation week went. And most of you have read Genesis chapter 1, and you remember it says that, uh, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, and God said, and there was, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So here's the other thing you should get out of that very first chapter, creation, orientation, is that the world, the universe was created in six 24-hour days. 
You say, how do you get that? Here's how. A few reasons. One, the word day, the evening and the morning were the first day. It's the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. You know that Hebrew word because Yom Kippur, you've heard of that Jewish holy day, the Day of Atonement. The Yom of Kippur, the Day of Covering, the Day of Atonement. So this Hebrew word Yom, throughout the entire Old Testament in Hebrew, every time it's used with a number, first, second, third, every time it's used, it's used of a literal day, the first day, the second day. And it's used that way throughout. But in case, you know, we don't get that, Moses makes sure to say, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So you have people who will say, well, you know, those days, we don't really know how long they were. They may have been ages. You know, I mean, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Who knows? And so Moses says, well, the evening and the morning, though. Okay? So there's that. So there's Yom with an ordinal, with a number, always a 24-hour day. The evening and the morning comprise each day. And thirdly, in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. In Exodus chapter 20, you have the giving of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then God goes on to give to Moses this explanation about the Sabbath day. For in six days, here's why you're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. Because in six days, the Lord your God created, and then he goes on to list all the stuff he created the land and the earth and everything that is in them. And on the seventh day, he ceased. He rested. So how long does that day of rest last? I'm asking. I mean, it'd be kind of cool if it was an indefinite period of time. That'd be sweet. But it didn't work that way, did it? It was actually a 24-hour day. And here in Exodus chapter 20, in giving the Sabbath day command, God compares that day to the other days. So these were six 24-hour days. In addition, just a couple more things about creation. You could go on. But this is setting the foundation for everything that follows, so that's why I beat up on it. In addition, as you read the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you see very clearly that humanity is special. Humanity is set apart. At the end of chapter 1, in the image of God, he created them. None of the other creatures are made in the image of God. Only humanity. Humanity is made in the, the image of God and that means it is that humanity, we, are made image, a reflection. When you, when you see that idea of image, think, think mirror. We were made, humanity was made to mirror God. To mirror what God is like. 
to mirror, to reflect, to image the character of God, to be like God in the way we think and talk and act. Now we're going to see the second thing that the Bible is about in a little bit here, the fall, the entrance of sin. So if what we were made to do is reflect God back to God in the way we think and talk and act, then think about what sin is like. Sin is failure to do those things. Sin is anything we do that is contrary to thinking and talking and acting like, like God. So you see that humanity is special. Humanity is set apart. Humanity alone among God's creatures is made in the image of God to reflect Him back to Him in the way we think and talk and act in our character. Only humanity has the capacity to do that. Now that has some you know, practical effects for us. I don't have time. I beat on this a little bit more in Master Plan for Life. But it has practical effects for us. Okay, um, I mean, what's more valuable, a human baby or a puppy? I mean, it shouldn't be hard. Okay? I mean, puppies are great, I'm told. My, my, my antipathy is fairly well known. <laughs> and I really, I'm, I'm, I'm warming up to, to the canine. I am, I am. My daughter, my daughter has a, a dog. And so, you know, I go to visit her, and if I want to go to visit her and enjoy it, I'm having to warm up to the, to the dog, okay? And, you know, she's my daughter, and I love her, and now she has our granddaughter who we love dearly, and so when I go over, the dog comes and, you know, and, but my, my own daughter says to me what every dog owner says when I go over and the dog says, oh, don't worry, he won't bother you. <laughs> and I say to her what I say to everybody, he's already bothering me, okay? <laughs> the fact that you have to say that bothers me, okay? Um, but, you know, in, but, you know, it really gets serious, doesn't it, in our culture now? Because if you don't have any revelation, any message from God that says what it's about, what we're about, who we are, vis-a-vis -vis everything else, then it's kind of all equal. When I was in college, you know, I took a philosophy class, and there was a guy named Peter Singer. If you, if you just you know, Google Peter Singer and animal rights and all of that, and you'll get all the reading you want. But it's all based on this idea that there's this equality among species. And we're just, we're one species among others. And you think about that in terms of being pro-life. You know, I'm, I'm fine to save the whales. But I'm more fine to save the babies. Because of this. All right, humanity is set apart. And then last, humanity is given the responsibility to rule for God, to rule on God's behalf, to rule this world as his vice regent in his world. So when you come to chapter 2, God is telling Adam, this is what you're going to do. You're going to rule over everything. He tells him that. He uses the word rule. You're going to subdue the earth. So we were made to do that on behalf of God. What an awesome responsibility. To rule, we're given the responsibility to rule 
And we're given the privilege of communing with God, relating to God. Because here's God talking to them. And he doesn't talk to anybody else, by the way. He talks to them. When you go through chapter 1 and it says, and God said, let there be light, it's just, you know, God's commanding, and it happens. But then you get down to the end of chapter 1 and it says, and God said to them. For the first time, God said to somebody else. And that somebody else is humanity. God said to them. And then you come to chapter 2, and this is specifically what you're going to do. God's saying to them, you're going to rule, you're going to subdue, you're going to do all of this stuff on my behalf. Not to anybody else. And, and they hear God, and they learn of God. And apparently they walk with God, they commune with Him. Because when you come to chapter 3, you remember? It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Well, how do they know that sound? It's a sound they're apparently familiar with. It's a sound that apparently they've heard before. And they've communed with God. So we were made to rule and to commune with God. Now, so far, we should just put a period on this and leave it at that. Didn't quite work out that way. Did it? Which brings you to the second thing. The Bible is about creation. But the Bible is about also redemption. Or excuse me, the Bible is about creation and it's about the fall. So you come to chapter 3. And when you come to chapter 3, the only voice that the man and the woman have ever heard is the voice of God. So you should be alarmed as you read those first couple chapters and you see all of this beauty that God has made and all of the care that he has taken to make it and the way that he has made humanity in his image and the way he fashioned the woman with care and presented her to the man. And the man at the end of chapter 2 in Hebrew, it's a poem, it's like a song. He sings praises to God. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's praising God for giving him this good gift. You read that, everything's beautiful. And then chapter 3. And the serpent was more crafty than all of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, oh no, another voice. He says to the woman, this is the first time in human history now that somebody else has talked. All they've had is God, the creator, and he's guiding them and he's guiding them accurately and truthfully. And the serpent said to the woman, and you guys have read this, right? And the serpent says to the woman, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden? Jesus, yeah what God said. She added a little bit to what God said. She said, you know, you can't even touch it. And, you know, you can't, all of that. He didn't say that. But you're not supposed to eat it, okay? But yeah, he, he says this. And he says, well, you know, God knows that you'll be like him when you do. 
That's why he's done this. He, he lies. The first lie in human existence occurs in Genesis chapter 3. And so it causes all kinds of immediate negative effects. It causes uh, vertical, first of all, vertical effects, negative effects, vertical, between humanity and God, vertically. That's the most devastating effect. Because they were communing with God, and now they're not. Because remember what they do? They hide. And what, what devastating words. That humanity, when you read the man and the woman, don't think Adam and Eve, think you and me. This is humanity. In fact, the Hebrew word Adam means man, humanity. It's a real person, but he represents us. So when, when they hid from God, we hid from God. We were made for all that other stuff. And now we're hiding. But they heard the sound of the Lord God coming. And the Lord says, Adam, what have you done? And he says, well, I was naked. And so I hid. Well, you know, God says, well, you were naked before. <laughs> I know you were naked. I made you naked, okay? So who told you you were naked? And then you remember what Adam does. He says, the woman. So now we got vertical. Um, we're hiding from God rather than communing with God. And now there's horizontal. I'm blaming the woman. And then God says to the woman, what is this you've done? And the first words out of her mouth are the serpent. So here's Adam. You know, I've said this on Sundays before, but here's Adam. He says, the woman you gave me. Specifically says, you gave me. So, you know, don't blame me. I just work here. <laughs> okay? Here the management. You made the, you made the woman. There's only one. You can't even get one right? I mean, that's kind of what's implied here. You guys ever hear this joke? That, uh, that you know, God's, God's just talking to Adam. He's saying, hey, I'm going to create for you this wonderful creature. She'll uh, clean. She'll cook. She'll do everything you, you need her to do. Um, and Adam says, wow, that sounds great. What's that going to cost me? And the Lord says, an arm and a leg. And he goes, that's a little steep. What can I get for a rib? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but anyhow. So he gets her. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you. Okay. But you, you made her. And then the woman says, the serpent. Now, she doesn't say the serpent that you made, but it's implied. Because the very first verse of chapter 3 says, the serpent was more crafty, was more subtle than all of the beast of the field that, the, that who? The Lord God had made. And the serpent. Well, this is the serpent you made. So this immediately has vertical effects. And it has horizontal effects. They start blaming, start blaming each other. The battle of the sexes starts in Genesis chapter 3. Marriage problems start in Genesis chapter 3. Every other problem of human existence starts in Genesis chapter 3, literally. 
disease, sickness. The ground is now cursed because of you. So we have natural disasters. Right now, as I speak, you've got things going on in Florida, right? There would be no Florida. And in the future, in the future kingdom, there will be none of that. But in a fallen world, there now is all of that, that the, that the, the creation itself is now, Romans chapter 8, groaning, awaiting its liberation from bondage to decay, is the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. So the vertical effects, horizontal effects, there is environmental effects. In my own view that this, is that this happened, this all happened all pretty quickly. Like how long after creation did this happen? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think it, uh, I think it happened fairly quickly. One reason I think it happened fairly quickly is you remember there were two special trees in the garden? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. That's what they eat of, sin. But there's another tree, the tree of life. And after they sin, they are cast out from the garden, the end of Genesis chapter 3, and there are cherubim set at the entrance to the garden with flashing swords so that they can't get back to the garden. And it's specifically said, otherwise, they may eat of the tree of life and live forever. So you don't have access to the, the tree of life anymore. Well, I take it that this all happened relatively quickly then after their creation because they hadn't gotten around to the tree of life yet, apparently. And yet it was long enough that they had built a routine. They knew the sound of the Lord God in, in the garden. So you had had two rebellions in fairly short order. A rebellion in heaven... So that what we call Lucifer, one of the angelic hosts, rebels and then comes to earth and tempts the first man and the first woman, and they rebel as well. So what we read in Genesis chapter 3 is not the first sin in the universe, it's the first human sin. The first sin in the universe happened prior to that with Lucifer. All right, so now we've got, now we've got sin. And we've got another voice. And now our nature, humanity's nature, is attuned to that new voice. Human beings come into the world and they hear the voice, the foreign voice of the serpent. And our Father, according to Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 44, is now the devil. I mean, it's really, it's really, it really goes south, very south, very quickly. And the depth of this sin is seen very early on. You come to chapter 4 of Genesis, and you have the first murder. Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel, and the first murder occurs as Cain kills Abel. Chapter 4. Now, God is telling us this is how deep sin is. This is what sin does. It separates you from me. It separates you from one another. And now you're killing each other. We're only four chapters in. 
Well, what's going what's gonna to happen? I mean, it, that's, that's how bad it is. Human beings are killing each other. By the time you come to chapter 6, the Lord says, this is what chapter 6 and verse 5 says. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. Wow, you come a long way, baby. Since being in the garden and ruling and communing with God, the thoughts of humanity's heart is only con evil continually. And then after that, you have the story of Noah. And you have the story of the destruction. All right, if, let's, let's start this over. Maybe we just, you know, maybe God did get a misstep, you know, with Adam. Maybe he got, you know, some DNA wrong. I don't know. He got something wrong here. So let's start it over again. Let's start it over with Noah. And, let's do, and God destroys everything except Noah and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife. Eight people. Let's start it over again. How does it go? It goes south. Why? Because they're all children of Adam. We all come into the world with the same spiritual disease, and the Bible is showing you this. In the opening chapters, everybody's got the same spiritual disease. So the Bible's about creation. The Bible's about the fall, the entrance of sin, and all of its consequences. And if it ends there, we're in a world of hurt. I mean, we're already in a world of hurt because it's sin-cursed. But we would really be hopeless if it ends there. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. And the next thing is, the Bible is about redemption. And I'll start that, and then we will pick up there next week. But here is God in Genesis chapter 3. And he comes and he says, Adam, what have you done? I was naked, and so I hid. And by the way, if you read in Genesis chapter 3, and, and, and Adam says, I was naked, when he says that, he's actually not physically naked. Do you guys remember that? Because they had made fig leaves for themselves. They had actually covered themselves. They were not naked. So why does he say I was naked? He's hiding not because he's physically naked. He's actually hiding because he is morally guilty. He's ashamed of his moral guilt, not his physical nakedness. And God comes and says, what have you done? Of course God knows what he's done. Don't you love it when God says, so what? Clue me in. God plays Columbo sometimes. Okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here. When in fact he knows what completely always, right, what's going on. And so he smokes them out. And as he does that, he gives these punishments. Adam, because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you. And he gives punishments to the serpent. He gives punishment to the woman. And as he does this to the woman, he does say this. I'm going to put, verse 15, Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between your seed 
of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I'm going to put warfare, that's what enmity means, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then the Lord says in Genesis 3.15, He, you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. You guys remember that? It's Genesis 3.15. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring a solution to this problem that you've created. That solution is going to come through the seed of the woman. There's going to be warfare between these seed of Satan and this seed of mine, God, that is going to correct this problem of sin. This warfare is going to mean that you, Satan, the serpent, are going to bruise his heel. But he will be victorious. He will crush your head. And as you move forward in the story of Scripture, that's what you see happening. These two seeds now moving forward. And the seed of the woman designated by God that becomes the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who crushes the head of the serpent. Now, that seed idea, and then i got to quit. Genesis 4, you got the first murder. Genesis 5, you get the first genealogy in the Bible. Genealogy. So so-and-so begat so-and-so, be, if you got a King James, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. This is all the part that you don't read. <laughs> Tell the truth. So you get there and you get through three or four begats and you say, okay, I got the idea. There are people begatting here. <laughs> Why is God given all the begats? Well, God doesn't waste any space. He doesn't waste any ink. He's keeping track of the seed. God says there's going to be the seed, and he's going to keep track of the seed now. And we are going to see that the seed goes through Noah and then through one of Noah's sons, and God keeps track of that. And when you come to chapter 10, there's going to be another genealogy after the flood and the destruction of the world so that God can remind us that this seed thing is still on track. And then you'll come to chapter 12, and there's going to be a particular seed of Noah's son, Shem, a guy named Abraham. And through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All goes back to Genesis 3.15. All right, we got to quit. If you have kids in the nursery or any of that, go get them quickly so that the nursery people are not mad at me. <laughs> See you next week, Lord willing. <laughs>